Dumelang, Sanbonani, Mulweni, Huyomora. Welcome to Season 2 of the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship, with me, your host, Luvuyo Maseko. We love hearing and sharing stories about social innovation happening both locally and outside our borders in the global south. In Season 2, we shine the spotlight on the change makers behind some incredibly innovative approaches and solutions that are creating systemic change. And we're also curious to find out what keeps them going. Join us as we discover how these change makers are changing the way we're changing the world. Welcome to Season 2 of the Just for a Change podcast. A recent article by the World Health Organization noted that globally, one in seven young people between the ages of 10 and 19 experience mental health challenges, with depression, anxiety, and behavioral disorders at the forefront. In addition, suicide is the fourth leading cause of death amongst 15 to 19-year-olds. In South Africa, these figures are equally dire. The South African Depression and Anxiety Group reports that there are 23 known cases of suicide in South Africa every day. And for every person that commits suicide, 10 have attempted it. Before COVID-19, the organization fielded nearly 600 calls a day. 18 months later, SADAG is fielding about 2,500 calls per day. Failing to address mental health and well-being issues in our youth has far-reaching repercussions that stretch all the way into adulthood. To provide a little bit more context, about 75% of adult disorders begin in childhood. The Bertha Center's Youth Innovation Portfolio seeks to create an environment in which young people have the opportunities to improve their lives by improving their employability and feelings of self-efficacy. Over the last few months, we have been running a mental well-being campaign with three high-level objectives. These include emphasizing the importance of mental health and psychosocial support for young people, sharing of best practice, and third, to explore if there are any policy-level interventions that would make it easier for the delivery and uptake of youth-focused psychosocial support on the ground. In this episode of the Just for a Change podcast, we'll be focusing on the topic of mental health and well-being for our young people, as well as the systems lens that is needed to have a better understanding of this topic. Pumlani Ngondwana was recently appointed a senior lecturer at the University of Cape Town's Graduate School of Business. With more than 10 years' experience working on entrepreneurship and innovation throughout the African continent, using his program and data management skills, we asked him to give us some insight into the topic of systems change. Hi everyone, um, my name is Pumlani and I'm really excited to, to connect with everyone. My view is that uh, systems really is about innovation um, and uh, using innovation to solve wicked problems. And part of that is about understanding issues of power and justice. Um, at the heart of systems change is really about an art of problematization that is different from the normal way of, um, of problematizing issues. And the reason for this is that stakeholders in systems change are often either not completely known or even if they are known, they are not um, easily accessible even if they are accessible, they tend to have so much power um, that, that creates an artificial barrier. So there is this process that you have to go through 
um, um, and, and problematize differently and map out who are the stakeholders and how to engage them. And that's where the innovation is. And of course, in, in Africa, you can apply that uh, understanding of systems change in many domains, in many problem areas, opportunity areas. I mean, one area that I spend a lot of time thinking about is around youth and um, entrepreneurship. And you think about climate change action, um, you think about education, you think about health issues. Um, it often is not about money. It is often not about lack of solutions. It is often really about the artificial barriers that have stayed in the system um, for, for a long time, um, many of which are cultural, many of which are mindset related, and all really artificial. I think, you know, Africans looking to solve African problems need to understand this and need to understand that systems change. Uh, tools and processes can really be helpful in convening differently, in creating strategic, intentional crowds that can create the right momentum to drive the necessary change. I also chatted to Kente Khatebe, an expert in the field of mental health and specifically youth mental health. Her voice will be no stranger to those of you who have been following the Just For A Change podcast for a while. Kente has recently taken up a new position at the DG Mari Trust working within the youth sector. One of Kente's interests is in the processes and levers that lead to social innovation with a focus on health and mental health. She also has experience working within the mental health space at the South African College of Applied Psychology. I asked her some questions about why, specifically within the youth context, an understanding of systems change is important, and specifically why a systems perspective on youth mental health and well-being is critical to understanding and tackling this very important issue. Being able to apply a systems approach to understanding the youth context in South Africa is actually quite critical. So for example, if we unpack some of the challenges that young people in South Africa face, so for instance, access to education, significant barriers to entering the labor market, resulting in an unemployment rate, looking at youth that's over 50%, access to resources, living in an unequal society. We know that close to 50% of households in South Africa are living in poverty. That means that young people are coming from households and communities where there really is significant reduction in access to opportunities and access to resources. So when we're trying to think about how do we solve for some of these challenges that affect young people, we can't do that in isolation. Systems thinking really encourages us to see the patterns and the connections between the different elements in a system. I think what's really critical about this question around young people and mental health is that it really highlights how oftentimes we think about mental health as an afterthought. We'll think about all the other aspects that are really impacting young people without really thinking about, well, what does that mean for young people's mental health? And I think what's really concerning about that is recognizing that how young people show up, whether it's at school, whether it's at organizations that they're part of in their communities, that's a critical part of who they are. When we're thinking about somebody's well-being, so their ability to, to cope with the normal stresses of daily life, to be able to work productively and to be able to make contributions to their own communities, 
These are all critical aspects of having a positive mental well-being. However, what we know in South Africa is that oftentimes it's very difficult and challenging to access mental health resources. And when we acknowledge the context that many young people are living in, so coming from communities that are severely unequal, um, coming from households that are experiencing gender-based violence, not having access to resources and opportunity to advance their own lives. These are all external stresses that would have an immense challenge on anybody who's going through that. So I think what's really critical here is not to separate the two, but when we're thinking about solutions or innovations that are directly impacting young people is to actually alongside that, think about their mental health. So good to hear Kente's voice on this podcast. And while we'll miss her at the Bertha Center, we wish her a wonderful season at DGMT and look forward to all of the collaborations that lie ahead. With all of this in mind, I'm excited to introduce today's feature story guests. From the School of Hard Knocks, we have Scott Sloan, and from the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, also known as SADC, we have Venetia Godan. The School of Hard Knocks uses sports, a research-based curriculum, and in-depth mentoring to help people improve their physical and mental well-being, while SADAG is at the forefront of patient advocacy, education, and destigmatization of mental illness in the country. They assist patients and callers throughout South Africa with mental health queries. Welcome, guys. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Afternoon. Yes, thanks for having us. All right, guys. Um, my first question is, is, is to both of you. And it's, um, it, is, it is probably one of the more difficult ones. So apologies in advance for starting off with one of these tougher questions. But to both of you, how would you explain the issue we're facing? And what are the repercussions of not adequately addressing mental health challenges, particularly as they relate to our young people? I'll start with you, Venetia. I think there's, there are those different stumbling blocks. And I know that you mentioned stigma already. And stigma is a big thing. It's about talking about your mental health, you know, knowing when to get treatment, knowing where to access that treatment is a huge problem. A lot of students, a lot of youth actually don't know, do I need treatment? Do I need help? What kind of help do I need? Where do I get access to this help? And I think that's where the communication, the education knowledge is power. You know, it's important to know all of this, know the warning signs. How am I feeling? How is my loved one feeling? How is my mom feeling? It's so important to know all of these things so that you know what resources are available. So those are the big things, I think, that become challenges and then hinder um, achievement, hinder, you know, progress, hinder the concept of I, I can do better. Mm -hmm. And and Scott, uh, the same question to you. I think that um there's a lot of studies out, out there that confirms this but i mean y young people um you know across the cape flats i guess in, in my experience are experiencing an unprecedented amount of stress and anxiety um especially in the last 18 months um and primarily i think uh due to experiences of, of trauma um and uh, particularly of, of violence. And I know that our students, um, about half of them have experienced multiple traumas in the last six months, um, about three quarters, at least one. Um, and I guess most commonly, it's it's about half have, have seen a violent crime um, in the last few months. So I think that um, 
one of the issues is that we're living in quite uh, the young people live in quite a violent um, society, and violence, you know, is, is definitely linked with um, uh, trauma and trauma with brain development, uh, and and so that's one of the, the big issues. I think. I think the other thing is that you know healing uh, and good mental health is associated with positive relationships with with peers and with adults and you know, friends and family. Um, and then one thing that we've um, uncovered in our own research is that young people, uh, kind of, as Venetia is saying, don't have that many people to turn to. Don't have the language, but, but they maybe don't have someone to turn to. Um, and, and that's, a, that's a big issue. You know, parents or caregivers are, are overworked, uh, perhaps not present as much as they would like to be. Um, and so that's a big thing. Um, and then I think just finally, the some of the issues that we're facing um, are because there's not really access to, to uh, good mental health resources at a community level. You know, it's kind of locked into to private and expensive uh, healthcare solutions, and, and it's not reaching um, the people that it needs to reach. So, um, and in terms of consequences, um, you know, when people are overwhelmed by Trauma. I mean, to, to to sort of describe it in terms of behaviours, I think which might be most helpful. I, mean, I think it impacts on on decision making, self regulation, and the processing of fears, memories, managing stress. Um, it can lead out. It can lead to acting out in harmful ways. Um, we might commonly associate with sort of fight, fight, flight. I think that's sort of in the common domains of of most people's vocabulary. So. You know, fight response, which we often associate, looks like you know, maybe gang membership or or um, addictive or acting out behaviours. But some some of the probably lesser known or lesser acknowledged um, consequences are, I suppose, when young people um, stay silent and, and avoid talking about their challenges and disconnecting from their feelings. Uh, we we see this quite a bit um, as a way of coping and. This is sort of associated with the flight response, and and that is associated with with mental health issues such as depression, anxiety, and and even su- suicidality. And um, so, so there's yeah, the consequences of, of those are grave. Indeed, and 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 Venetia, maybe over to you. One of the things we mentioned earlier, and Scott alluded to it as well, is that um, we live in. A, the majority of, 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 of adults who go through or suffer with mental health challenges, um, a lot of it can be traced back to childhood. And, and I wonder from your point of view, at what stage do you think is the right time to begin having conversations with young people about their mental health so that we don't deal with some of the negative behaviors that Scott outlined earlier? That's actually a very good question because so SADAG always did school talks. So we used to do school talks. We used to go to a school and we were mandated to do class by class talks, talking about mental health, anxiety, depression, you know, how to cope with stress, how to cope with difficulties. Pre-COVID, we actually went into or started to go into primary schools where we were talking to like, you know, younger people about mental health, talking to younger people about anxiety, about stress, how to manage it. You know, it's been quite a need where we're seeing younger and younger people experiencing 
extreme stress where they don't know what to do or how to manage their school schedules, how to manage, you know, the exactly how he Scott mentioned the trauma they might have experienced, whether it be at home, whether it be at school, whether it be, you know, in the greater community. So there's lots of different aspects that are impacting a person. So mental health is something that you need to start that conversation earlier. Also, you know, it's not even only about talking about mental health. Maybe let's change it up and say your mental wellness. Maybe just having that conversations from a very young age to say, how are you doing today? You know, how are you really doing today? Not how was your day at school today where, yeah, my day was fine. This happened, this happened. But maybe how are you feeling today? How are you really doing? How is your emotional space? Maybe when kids start maybe withdrawing, you know, they used to be this outgoing, super energetic student or person, and now they're withdrawing a little bit. You know, they might be spending a little bit more time in their room. Maybe starting with that conversation, you know, I've noticed that you've been withdrawing a little bit. Is something the matter? Did something happen? And let's have that conversation and open that dialogue. It's encouraging to, to hear Venetia, um, because as she's speaking, you know, I'm... I'm seeing, you know, interactions between our, our team and, and, and the young people we work with, you know, and, and uh, it's funny you ask that question, you know, how are you really feeling? And, and, and for the first month or two months, you get a sort of blank stare, you know, and, and that leads back to the sort of lack of vocabulary for it, you know, but we, not only are we persistent, but but we, we begin to teach some of that vocabulary, you know, and it's amazing that uh, what might first seem like a, a lost cause, you know, after a few months of, of trust trust being built up, um, that 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 you really do get some hard answers to, to, to that question, and, and then then you begin you have a platform to to develop and, and, and change change someone for the better, or they have the potential to change themselves for the better. So it is amazing how simple it is, isn't it? I mean, you, you just have to be consistent in that and say, about how are you really doing?" You know, and that, that does pay off and 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 to pull on that thread scott maybe a, a word of advice you would have for someone listening to this who who's maybe working or working with a group of young people that they're finding it hard to connect to you mentioned a little bit about that consistency about always being there perhaps how have you found that that come to the fore in your work how how do you guys go about creating those safe spaces so that eventually a young person can speak to you about these issues yeah, I mean it's it's key it's key and we and we've learned this the hard way you know we we are a young organization we we had a very tough um, first eighteen months um, we didn't um, look after our, our staff perhaps or we didn't identify the the right staff you know and um, in the process of of kind of working to find uh, great great team members you know we let we let down our students and they let us know you know when when people moved on you know it hurt um for all of us you know and so we we made it very uh big uh we make it extremely important that if, if you're going to come and and work with young people in our organization you have to commit to to a minimum of two years or a length of time you know and, and we um you know within within the boundaries that we have we, we look after our staff because they're the, they're, they're the most important people in, in the organization and um, so I think the one thing we do is that we we really uh, put a lot of emphasis on staff's longevity and and their well-being so that they stick around long enough to build those trusting relationships. So yeah, bu- building that trust with with an adolescent is is so imperative, and I, I speak from doing it doing it badly. 
um, are doing it wrong and getting it right, hopefully. Um, and I think the other thing is like I think there's enough evidence out there that you know if you do stick stick at it and develop that emotional vocabulary, you you will get results if if you um, have positive um, adult relationships or, and with with adolescents, you you will get something at the end. I mean, and and you know to be prepared for that and make sure you have, you're qualified or trained to to have difficult conversations mm. I, I mean it's so interesting what you say i mean there's a lot of spaces where they talk about leading with your heart but you you think specifically with this this it rings in even more true and and i want to maybe ask venetia from your guys' experience particularly because a lot of the calls that you guys feel that happens over over the phone or whatsapp or something along those lines how do you guys go about creating those safe spaces when that when you don't have that face-to-face engagement with a young person? How how has that come to life in your guys' experience? So I think it's important to highlight that SADC has gotten significantly busy within this COVID space. And, you know, we're getting over 2,500 calls right now a day compared to the 600 to 700 calls that we got pre-COVID. And I think it's important to highlight here is that there's so much more need. So many more people are feeling stressed, are feeling overwhelmed. They're not sure what to do and they're reaching out. Um, SADAC has been around for the past 28 years. And I think there's a lot of trust when it comes to, you know, what SADAC does, the information we give, the toolkits that we have. If you look on our website, you'll see umpteenth amount of information. We have webinars, we have videos, we have so much information. And I think it's because we are so trusted and those helplines are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that trust is being created that if someone reaches out to SADAG, they're able to get a counselor on the phone where they can explain how they're feeling. We're also coming now towards Teen Suicide Prevention Week. And that's a big activation for SADAC. We we used to go into school pre-COVID. We were able to go into schools, do the talks, you know, speak to kids class by class, giving them that information, you know, doing a teacher talk. So we're also providing the teacher with the information that the kids are learning. So they're able to like, you know, piggyback off each other. So they also know what the morning signs are. They know, you know, what to look out for. They're aware of the communication in the conversations that the, the kids are having. And then what we added was, and now we're doing it via Zoom, is we have the parents talks where we also give that information. So it's also, it's important to have all the information around mental health, all the warning signs, all, you know, those little coping skills, so self-help tips get spread across the board so that everyone feels supported and understood. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And and as I was listening to both your guys' answers, it's just, it's hard to not feel re-energized. Sometimes it's very easy to to sort of lose your vumai and your chias within this space. And it's always really great to come across individuals who are as passionate and committed as, as you guys are and are so clear with the way you guys are providing your answers. The next question I have is, is to both of you, but I'll, st- I'll start with Scott. And Scott, from your point of view, who, who do you think should take the lead in tackling and addressing youth-related uh, mental health issues? Sure, that's a big question. Um... I mean, it would be easy, uh, you know, from my perspective to say, you know, like you know, community-based organizations or NGOs like ourselves. But, I mean, I think the problem is too vast and, and the resources um, 
available to, to organizations like our, ourselves are, are just too limited. You know, I think it has to come from government. Um, and, you know, I think as Venetia was saying, you know, if, if teachers could be included in the solution, um, I think that's, that's probably the, the, the lowest hanging fruit, you know, I mean, um, I think that if you kind of calculate or look at who's spending the most time with with the, the youth of South Africa, um, you know, it, it, given the sort of situation at home, you know, and and if, if um, caregivers are, are at work, it, it is teachers, you know. So um, I think that if if the Department of Education were willing to include uh, trauma awareness or or mental well-being um, tools into their teacher training, um, you know, it would be a massive advantage for young people, but, all, but also for teacher well-being, I think, as well, to begin to kind of understand what what they're seeing in, in front of them, you know, and, and be able to look at kind of uh, child behaviours, not not as symptoms of, of, you know, that being a bad child but but someone who's undergoing or experiencing um trauma or or um you know traumatic events at home or or um on the way to school so um i think uh, the department of education is a crucial part of the caregiving environment and 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 potentially the child support network uh, that's needed to to improve uh, well-being and 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 venetia to you Scott mentioned a little bit about the the role of teachers and the Department of Education, and that speaks to the public sector. And I wonder from your experience, um, what roles do you think all entities in the public and private sector should have in, in addressing this issue? I want to say that I would love if exactly when he said that, you know, including well-being in the teacher's course so that they are so understanding and they have that already, you know, on their back foot. So when they're going into teaching, they or they're meeting the students and exactly that they're spending the most time with the youth. So they have to have that know-how. And I think even when we go into schools or when we have the teacher talks, there's so much that the teachers are unaware of or not sure what to do or even what their role is. So I think defining those roles become very important then. What are those boundaries? What are those roles that you are? Like how far is too far? And when do the parents get involved? And how, you know, defining those. And I think Department of Educational Government actually putting more infrastructure or more education or more knowledge in that space or even psychosocial education becomes a huge part there. You know, teaching those those simple warning signs, teaching, you know, what do you do when the student comes to you and tells you, you know, this has happened to me at home or, you know, I'm experiencing these thoughts, these negative thoughts. What does a teacher do? What do they say? And I think when you mentioned like who should lead, you know, I think it's everyone. I think it's all like, you know, everyone needs to play their role or play their part within the space so that we're actually creating a youth person that is able to manage themselves or manage their stress, but knows that they can have these conversations. So I think it still comes down to that open communication and having that knowledge play a big role. Mm-hmm. I-, I love that. And, and, Part of what I've, I've found through my own conversations, and both of you have alluded to the issue of access, is that I think we sometimes 
place too too much of an emphasis on who can work in, in, in working with young people to address these issues or talking to them about their mental health. Um, do you think part and part of the problem is our expectations? Do you think it's necessary for someone, for example, to study up until a master's level, then go do the community service for them to be able to practice within this space? Do you think there's a middle ground there? And, and I'll sort of direct this to both of you and I'll start with Venetia. I mean, when you're talking about that sort of education space, you're talking about a psychologist, right? But you do have social workers. You do have registered counselors. You have, you know, different people. And I think that's also something that I actually wrote down. I was like, it's so important to know that access to treatment doesn't only mean a psychologist. You know, it doesn't only mean a psychiatrist. It means the occupational therapist. It means the social worker. It means the the registered counselor if you have to take your child there it means the educational psychologist if the child is needing that help so there's different there's different needs for that child and i think defining those needs and creating that understanding of you know what does a psychologist do what what is their role what treatment do they actually supply versus a psychiatrist what treatment do they supply so i think Knowing all of those also makes a very big difference in where you're going to get that treatment for that child if they need it. And 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 Scott, perhaps there's the same question to you. Yeah, the boy. It's I mean, this is an innovation uh, podcast, and uh, I mean, ostensibly, it's the innovation is 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 the you know what birth is all about, you know. And I think we must. First, just say that I think the, the like the prevailing infrastructure around mental health at the minute is just is not suitable to reach to reach young people in, in a way that that they need to, and I think we need to look at new ways of of approaching it. You know, and I'm like, immensely proud that 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 like the School of Hard Knocks are are trying something new and something different, um, and you know we we. Our sort of model is primarily based around as a lay counselling model. So, um, someone, a young person with youth development experience, can really do kind of three, six, twelve months um, of of either self study or, or structured study. We we kind of do both, um, and as long as they report to a registered counsellor, they they um, are are able to provide that that year round. Um, mentoring and, and uh, support to young people so we um yeah our model is, is basically based around um being able to provide kind of year-round support for about the price of two sessions with a um a psychotherapist or a therapist in private healthcare. so so about five thousand rand per child per year we're giving 26 sessions um with a day counselor and if needs be um if if the it goes beyond their skill set they uh, can access our our counselor or social worker and then if it goes beyond their skill set into the uh, healthcare system which we have some funds for so um i think that um you know the the mental health care doesn't have to be uh expensive uh, i think there is a, a, a alternative or different ways of approaching it uh, to sit to the situation that we're in. I think we are one of a, a number of organizations who are kind of going down this lay counseling route. And I think it's something that 
you know, we're trying to build the research base around. I know, I know some of our peers have already got some great research about this this approach, and um, I think it's it's exactly what's what's needed. I don't think we can rely on on um, the kind of older traditional structures to to solve this these problems. Mm-hmm. I, I sense there's a bit of a challenge there in in Scott's in Scott's answer, and I think the challenge is is to to all of us operating within this space, and particularly listeners. If you have an innovative idea that can look to address the issues that we're talking about in a more equitable way, please shoot shoot us an email. The the whole hope here is that we can begin to collaborate and find co-created solutions that work for our context. All too often within this space, we like to prioritize and focus on the issues. So my last question is more on a positive note, and, and perhaps I'll, I'll start with you, Venetia. And it's, what is your hope for the future? What does your utopia look like when it comes to working with our young people? We're often always thinking about like what's wrong and what are we going to do about it instead of what we think would be like the, the major greatest thing in the world. And I think I would love if we were able to talk about mental health as openly as we talk about anything else, you know, talk about our feelings. Also, you know, teach the young people of today that, you know, it's okay to feel not okay. It's okay to reach out. It's okay to, you know, say that I'm not having a good day or I'm not feeling well. I think that's what I would really hope that the future looks like because they are the future. I mean, I definitely think uh, I would echo Venetia sort of in saying that, you know, I hope, I hope that we have a language and a vocabulary around mental health that means that we have a supporting uh, environment to, to talk about our, ourselves and our feelings. It's, you know, something we can, everyone can aspire to. Um, I, I mean, I think a great short answer would be a, a world or, or a country where, uh, you know, our roles don't have to exist, you know, so put us out of business, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't need to provide uh, the care that we, that, that we do provide. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for, for sharing your time and your, and your, and your immense insights with us. We really do appreciate it. Thanks again to Venetia Godan from SADC and Scott Sloan from the School of Hard Knocks. Now it's time to move over to our Positive Outlook story by Sydney Yuekanga. We'll be joined by Amanda from Community Keepers. Thanks, Luvuyo, and hello to all our listeners. Building a culture of well-being, especially in our youth, is critical for a thriving society. In this episode's Positive Outlook Story, we'll be hearing from Community Keepers, an organization whose mission it is to invest in the social, emotional, and mental well-being of learners and their caregivers, including educators, parents, and guardians. The organization believes that as we do this, we can create supportive school communities where learning and development can prosper. Just to note for our listeners, this podcast was recorded remotely and due to technical challenges at the time of recording, you may notice that the audio in this segment is different from the rest of the podcast. And on that note, I'd like to welcome our guest, Amanda Fandefeva of Community Keepers. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Amanda, I'm so excited to have you today um, to be speaking to you. Just jumping right into the conversation, could you tell us about the work you're doing in schools or planning to do? All right, yes. We, um, we're an NGO and we do work um, in 29 schools currently. So we have 
um, school based offices. So that means that we have an office in the 39 schools, and in these offices, we have therapists who provide psychosocial support services to our learners and parents and other caregivers, as well as the educators of that school by means of individual therapy sessions, by means of some group sessions, uh, preventative work, like skill um, group sessions in classes and different grades, um, as well as group therapy sessions. And then we do some training with, um, with educators. So we do some staff development, um, teaching them about mental health and how to help the learners in their classrooms and how to um, how to do all of that, and as well as some sessions with parents where we'll have workshops with parents on different topics so that they can also further assist their learners or their children at school. This definitely sounds like very important work. And so I'm just also curious in hearing your views on some of the success stories that have come out of this work that Community Keepers has done. Yes, I think there's so many um, success stories and some of it we can share because we have permission to and some we can't. But um, and you know, I want to invite people to go and have a look at our social media pages. We, we share quotes, we share stories from learners. But I, if I think, if I have to say in general, you know, the, the themes of these success stories is that learners have a space where they can talk, they have a space where they can go. So we would hear comments by learners saying that, ah, oh, I could talk to this to this lady, I could talk to this auntie, um, I could talk to this teacher, and they sometimes call our therapist teachers as well um, about what was going on. Um, or we see learners who are acting out in class and we can get them into our office and we have punching bags in our playrooms and they can punch and they can shout and they can get, you know, let, let things out instead of punching the guy next to them in class. So I think those are the success stories that people have spaces to, to talk and um, and to process the, the difficulties. We know that learners in our, in our communities all over the country um, have difficulties that they experience um, and, and they can come and talk about that. They can get some advice. They have an ally um, in, in the form of of an adult who that is such a positive role model for them for them as well. So we've seen learners who have been suspended over and over because of things like fighting or acting out stop you know, stop their fighting. Or you see people um, or learners who maybe have difficult relationships with their parents where they can return to their parents and they can start communicating with them. It's so exciting um, to hear you speak about some of these platforms that young people can uh, engage in, and especially the spaces, as you mentioned. I would also like to hear from you what challenges, independent of your own programs, that continue to escape solutions, if you can share that with us. Yes, I, I think one of, again, there are so many challenges that our learners face, and I think with the COVID pandemic, we, we saw that, and we saw that it was almost like that was, that was that was magnified, um, those, those, some, some of those challenges. But I think something that is still quite difficult and, and, and difficult to, to get by is that there's still a stigma about, about mental health challenges. So, you know, nobody thinks twice if, if a child says, my stomach hurts or I fell and I, you know, I hurt my knee. But the moment when um, a learner says he is feeling sad or um, somebody says they have anxiety or they feel depressed, 
um, there's kind of an awkward silence because it's something that we shouldn't speak of. And, and you would think, we would think like, you know, it's, it's 2022, um, people are, are more open about this, thing, but I think it's still a stigma. Um, so, yeah, so learners are, are sometimes still afraid to come to the offices because they're afraid like somebody will see them coming to our offices. Um, somebody will see they're asking for help. So this, this idea of um, asking for help or coming for therapy or seeing a therapist and makes you weak. Um, I think that is something that, that still has a long way to go um, to, to, to be free of that. That it's easy to say, let's go and fetch a learner from the class. And we don't have to be afraid like, oh, is somebody going to see because the learner doesn't want anybody to see I'm fetching them to go to moving towards um, a space where we can go and say, okay, it's your turn, it's your turn, it's your turn, because everybody comes to therapy because it's okay. I'm sure this can sometimes feel like an overwhelming space to work in. Do you have anything hopeful that you'd like to share with us? Yes, I think I think the hope is that learners learners do have voices and they are resilient. Children are resilient. Um, and we can build resilience. It's easy to build resilience. It's easy to build self-efficacy and help learners be stronger. Um, help learners know that they can master the things that they are trying. Build confidence. It's it's not it's not a difficult task. Anybody can listen to a child. Anybody can smile <laughs> um, to a child um, or or help them or tell them well done. Um, and and it's so it's so easy. We sometimes think we have to do a lot, or it's a big task, but it's a small task. It's it's letting your child like drive with you to the shop, um, so you can spend some time with them and ask them how their day was. It's the small things that will build that resilience in our children that they know okay they have the skill to 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 be to be the the better person to to win over. Um, their circumstances um, and I, I think that is I think that is hopeful the issues we're facing are complex but thankfully there's hope in the end we believe that the effective delivery of educational and employment programs cannot be provided in isolation neither can they be provided without focusing on the importance of mental health and overall well-being Young people require more than just material or educational support. They require psychosocial development and support as well. This involves the strengthening of psychosocial muscles that are vital to human development. Thank you for tuning in to Season 2 of the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. If you're curious about what innovation is happening in Africa and the Global South and who the movers and shakers are behind these initiatives, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss out on any of our upcoming episodes.